Welcome to Baltimore, Maryland. My name is Brad O'Brien, and in February of 2013, my family, my wife Jenna Marie, and my two daughters, Kalia Grace and Elsa, will be transplanting our lives from Durham, North Carolina, to Baltimore, Maryland, to begin a journey of church planting. I'm the lead pastor of Redeemer City Church, a brand new gospel-centered church in the heart of Baltimore. As we started looking at several cities, Baltimore stuck out to us for a couple of different reasons. It's an influential city with 620,000 residents. It's the 24th largest city in our nation with over 200,000 college students studying at over 15 universities. It's an educational hub for our nation. It's also a medical hub for our nation. Johns Hopkins Hospital is one of the nation's leading hospitals. People come from all over the world to this city to get medical care. We also realize that there are deep needs in this city. Baltimore is a city that struggles with violence, struggles with fatherlessness and poverty. And so we realized that there was a canvas for us to put the gospel on display so that people around us would stop and take notice. Our motivation for all of this is pretty simple. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. In this city, we believe that the gospel in the midst of violence will bring peace. In the midst of fatherlessness, we will see by the grace of God, men, women, and children adopted into the family of God through the blood of Christ. And in the midst of poverty, we believe that as the recipients of the most generous gift of all time, that we will have a chance to put on display radical generosity in a response to what Jesus has done for us. You know, it takes more than a pastor to plant a church. And so we're looking for people to come alongside of us and to be a part of this church planning journey with us. One way you can do that is by praying for us. We would love to send you email updates about our needs and our prayer request. We would love for you to commit to stop whatever you're doing, to pray for us as you receive those updates. We also need financial support. We're not asking people to give to us as a charity. We're asking for people to invest in us as we seek to plant the gospel in Baltimore and make disciples. For more information, you go to our website, RedeemerBaltimore.com. Summit Church, I want to welcome you here at all of our campuses today. This is one of those bittersweet moments that we have from time to time as a church where we do this very joyfully and we do it tearfully at the same time. The team that is on stage here behind me is um, our latest church plant that we are commissioning, um, some 30 or so that we are sending from our church who are uprooting their lives and moving to Baltimore, Maryland to plant a church there in an area that needs a church. Uh, one of the things that we say here at the Summit Church is that we are committed to sending our best, that church planting and sending and missions has a cost, not just in the money that we give, but in the kinds of people we send. We send out our, some of our very best people. And this team that is behind me on the stage right now is certainly no exception to that. Um, leaders of the team here, Brad and Jenna Marie, Brad has um, been with me personally for 10 years, been with the Summit Church for 10 years, showed up in my office 10 years ago um, as a... Uh, a volunteer college intern. Uh, we soon made him volunteer college pastor and didn't pay him anything. He stuck around long enough that we felt like we had to start paying him because we felt bad about how we were taking advantage of him. Um, but a lot of the things that we take for granted here at our church that you and I, that you, many of you may not even know this, um, came through Brad's leadership. Um, the City Project, where we have 
you know, hundreds of students every summer that are spending the summer learning about ministry. That was Brad's idea when he was the college pastor. Serve RDU, um, where we engage with our city. That was Brad's vision and Brad's leadership. Um, Brad has served in a number of, of positions here. He's uh, mentioned our college pastor for many years, was one of our first missions pastors here, um, was one of our first campus pastors when we launched a new campus because I knew I needed somebody that could just envision it out and, and lead in it. Um, we were going to miss him dearly, um, but we know that the gospel is worth it, and we're committed to doing it because we know that for every leader we send out, God seems to raise up three more um, in their place. This team that's here with him is actually not the whole thing. There's about 10 or 15 that have already moved up to Baltimore. I'll give you a shot of them real quick. Um, there they are. Uh, I look at that, uh, at that group and I see elders of the Summit Church. I see small group leaders. I see community leaders. I see um, uh, leaders in our student ministry, and our college ministry. In fact, uh, the more I look at it, the more depressed I get. Are you sure that all you guys want to go? Because I feel like I got a great spot for um, some of you. Um, these are, 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 are relocating their lives. They are, many of them have um, transferred their job. Many of them have resigned their job and are currently looking for one. They've sold their houses and they're moving up there because they believe that, that God was calling them to take the gospel to Baltimore. Um, not all of us are called to relocate, but God has given all of us something that he intends for us to use to leverage for the Great Commission. Um, living sent is not for a select few. Living sent is for all of us. Um, I pray that many of you, like me, will feel called to Raleigh-Durham, but you will be no less sent than, than here than you would be if you went to go with one of these, one of these teams. One of the things we say around here is, is you can interpret the will of God by, you know, saying whatever you do, do it well for the glory of God, and then do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. These are moving to Baltimore. Um, I want you in a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to pray together for this team as we commission them, but as we pray for them, I want you to be listening to the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? How is he renewing your call to be sent? Um, is it here? Is he putting something in your heart about going with one of our church plants or going overseas with one of our church planting teams there, or maybe even the Baltimore team? Um, being sent is for everybody, whether we're sent here or whether we're sent somebody else. So as we pray, I want you to listen. Um, why don't you stand to your feet if you would? Let's all join together at all campuses across the triangle. We're going to stand as one covenant body. As your representative, I'm going to lay my hands on, on Brad um, and commission him. Um, Brad, I know that you might... Um, have a word or something you want to say? You want to do that now instead of after? Of course. Okay, there you go. It has uh, been one of the greatest joys in my life to serve in this church and to be a part of this faith family for the last 10 years. Um, the sadness that my family feels as we contemplate God's call in our life to go plant a church in Baltimore is how I hope you will feel if there is ever a time you have to leave this church. When the Apostle Paul left the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, it says there's just much weeping. They hung on his neck, and that type of relationship is what I long for all of you to have here in this church, because it's what I've had for 10 years. So I hope that this church will not be a program or just something you do on Sundays, but that it will be a family that you invest in. We appreciate your prayers, and we ask that you would believe on our behalf for great things to happen in the city of Baltimore. So, thank you. Why don't you uh, pray with me, all right? Father, as a representative of this body of people, I pray, God, that you might open doors for this team in Baltimore that no one can shut. God, you promised to go before them. I pray that you would identify for them the people of peace that they could use to build these networks of relationships to share the gospel. 
I pray that you would sweep your hand, God, through this area of Baltimore they're going to be in so that, that questions um, about you are asked that they can preach the gospel to. We pray that you would deliver drug addicts, God, from the bondage to drugs. We pray that you would put together families. We pray that you would release people from unbelief and release them from idolatry. God, we pray that the gospel would have a marvelous effect on this new area in Baltimore that we're going to be um, seeing this church planted. Um, Father, we pray that their testimony would be what we say about here at the Summit Church, that you do exceedingly abundantly above all that we would ask or think. We trust you, Father. We trust your leadership in this. God, bring them to mind often so that we can pray very specifically um, for the needs that they have, that God, this would be a marvelous work where you get all the glory. We ask that, Lord, believing in your faithfulness and your goodness, we commission this team in Jesus' name and all God's people, the Summit Church and all of our campuses said, amen, amen. And put your hands together for this team here. Guys, come. Amen. And all God's people said, go Ravens, all right, for Baltimore. You guys can be seated. I was just out of curiosity, how many of you are uh, Ravens tonight? Uh, tonight? How many are the other one, uh, 49ers, all right? If you're on the fence, we're planning a church in Baltimore, so clearly you need to be pulling for the Ravens. I was going to do the squirrel dance up here for you guys, but uh, I thought better of it. I wore the wrong shoes. Um, hey, I want you guys to know that, um, that the reason we're able to do this and the reason um, that we were able to plant the Chapel Hill campus, which is not a church plant, but one of our campuses, um, we did that, th for, this is the third week, three weeks in a row now, they have averaged over 1,200 people at that campus. Um, the reason that we were able to do that is because of your generosity in what we call our all-in initiative. Um, all-in initiative, if you were new here, is our one-fund approach that basically funds everything we do here at the Summit Church, um, the full scope of our mission. It's how we make disciples of our family, how we um, expand ourselves to reach our neighbors, and how we send people out to reach our world and the nations. Um, if you are curious about what that is, summitallin.com, um, that's where you can have all the information um, that, is, uh, that is there on that. Um, if you have your Bible, I would love for you to take it out now and open it to the book of 1 John. Uh, 1 John, which is uh, toward the last part of your New Testament. Um, book of 1 John, we are in our third week here of this uh, series, so about halfway through. And uh, uh, we are answering this question, all right? How do you know that you know God? How do you know that you know God? How do you know that what you think um, about your experience with God is genuine? How do you know that you're not deceived? How do you know that he loves you? How do you know that you are at peace with him? How do you know that you will spend eternity with him? How do you know you're not swept up in some kind of movement where you're just going along with the crowd, but your personal experience with God is not real? That is the question that the book of 1 John is written to answer, and I would submit to you that there is no more important question that you will ever consider in your entire life. That question is more important than where you go to college. It's more important than the GPA you graduate with. It's more important than the kind of job you get or how much money you make. It's more important than who you marry. It's more important than how happy your marriage is or even how happy you are in life because if you get that question wrong, it doesn't matter if you get every other question right, you've lost everything. Imagine that you were you know, looking out the, the, uh, the, the window of your corner office at the top of one of the city's highest skyscrapers. 
And you were thinking, uh, you made it very successful as an investment banker, and you're trying to, to, to consider whether or not to invest tens of million dollars in company X or company Y, knowing that this, this choice is going to make or break your career. And that's an important, that's a weighty decision, but imagine that you're at the top of the World Trade Center on the date of September 11, 2001, and it's 8 a.m. In light of what is about to happen, even a decision that weighty is rather trifling. In light of what God says about eternity, every other decision that you make, as important as they are, is not nearly as important as whether or not you know that you know God and whether or not what you think you know about God is right. So that's the question that the book of 1 John is written to answer. And what John does is he identifies three signs in the last half of 1 John 1, three signs of somebody that doesn't know God even though they think they do. Now what's important about this is John is writing this to religious, spiritual people. He's not saying that here are three proofs that the pagans are wrong. He's saying here are three signs that somebody who is spiritual, somebody who thinks they know God, somebody who is involved in a church, somebody who's very spiritual, here are three signs that though they think they know God, they actually don't. The first two he's going to identify by the phrase, if we say we know him and, I mean, he's going to say, but we do this or this, then we deceive ourselves. Um, let's look at those three. Let me give you all three of them at the, right here at once, um, and then you, uh, we'll break them down one at a time. All right, number one, you don't know God, John says, if, number one, you sin. You continue to sin. And by that, he means willfully, habitually. We'll get to that. Number two, you don't know God if you say you have no sin. And then number three, you don't know God if you have no confidence before God because of your sin. Right? So you don't know God if you sin. You don't know God if you say you have no sin. You don't know God if you have no confidence before God because of your sin. Uh, let's look at those one at a time. First John 1, 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is John's way of saying, I'm not a Buddhist. Right? God is not yin and yang with a little bit of darkness and light all mixed in there together. God is all light. There is no evil. There is no wickedness. Nothing comes from him but pure goodness and holiness. If we say, therefore, verse 6, we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So number one, you don't know God if you continue to sin. And by the way, I don't mean by that that you ever sin because all of us sin. He'll, for you to say that you don't continue to struggle with sin would be its own problem that he'll deal with in a minute. What he means if you willfully, defiantly pursue sin. Note his imagery of the use of light here, or excuse me, the use of the imagery of light here. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Darkness here, of course, referring to moral darkness, injustice, hypocrisy, hatred, um, violence, unfaithfulness, impurity. You cannot, John says, say that you love God at the light if you continue to seek after the darkness. You cannot say that you love God, who is pure light, if your life is one where you continue to pursue and practice the things that he calls darkness. You can't live in the light and seek the darkness. Because if you've really been saved, you have a new spirit in you that craves the light, that shows that you have been given the spirit of God's light because you begin to desire the light. 
right? I used an illustration the first week of this series that I described as a little bit earthy, which is actually probably a kind way to say it. And you got to forgive me, this is the youth pastor in me coming back out. Um, all the seventh graders in here are going to be like, yep, I like that right there. And all the adults are grossed out. But this, I use it, it's gross for a reason. I described it like if somebody had just thrown up right in the middle of the floor down here. Remember that? And I told you, I was like, if we had a big steaming pile of vomit right here in the middle of the floor, there is not a one of you, not one, that would need me to say it is against the rules for you to lick up this vomit, right? I wouldn't have to be like, and I'm putting two big old guards on either side of it to make sure that when I'm not looking, you're not down here on your knees licking up that vomit. Nobody needs to hear that because it's disgusting to you. Your nature would not lead you to it. Now, I told you that would be different if you were a dog. If you're a dog, then I do got to make rules, and I do got to, you know, fence it off so you can't lick it up. Because you're like, oh, I'm a dog. I love human vomit. It's just, you know, it's just awesome, right? God, when he saves us, does not put guards around sin in the form of threats and punishments that if we don't do it, he's going to punish us. He changes our nature so we don't desire it. That's what he does. God doesn't want spiritual dogs in heaven. You know who are only obeying him because they're afraid of what God's going to do? And when God turns his back, you're trying to go back to what you love. God wants you to be someone who loves what he loves. And one of the marks that God's spirit has come inside of you is you begin to progress, your desires begin to change so that you love the light. King David said it in Psalm 19 this way, the commands of the Lord are radiant to me. They give light to my eyes. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing my heart. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Is that how you feel about God's laws? Or are you the kind of person who chafes against God's laws and is trying to ask, what is the minimum that I've got to do in order for God to stay happy with me? Because if that is the spirit that is in you, you've got to ask, do you actually know God? Maybe you went through a ritual, but have you actually been born again? Because one of the signs of being born again by the being of ultimate light is you begin to crave and desire the light and you start to feel about God's laws the way that David felt about God's laws. Can I tell you a few things that I often hear or see in church people? That, um, that shows that they're still in darkness. I'll give you a few of them. Thinking that you can believe without repenting. That's one. I had a girl tell me not too long ago, she said, you know, I received Jesus as my Savior, um, but I have not yet accepted him as my Lord. As if you could bifurcate Jesus into multiple different parts and like order a certain package of Jesus and then upgrade later to the higher package. That's not, Jesus does not come in parts. You can't believe without repenting. You can't accept him as Savior without taking him as Lord. Repent was the first word, the first command that Jesus gave the first time he preached the gospel, Mark 1.15. Repent and believe the gospel. Um, it was the first word out of Peter's mouth after he preached the gospel in Acts 2.38 for the first time. Um, repent. Paul said repentance is what um, God had commanded all men everywhere to do now that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So you cannot believe without repenting. You cannot take Christ as Savior and not take him as Lord. You can't be saved by the light if you still hate the light, right? I mean, imagine a guy that's about, about ready to, meet, uh, to, to marry a girl, and right before they get married, he says, hey, I just got to tell you, I'm really not that into you. In fact, I'm actually, I actually am still into these other girls, and I hope that you're clear that when we get married, I'm not giving up my relationships with these other girls. Any girl going to go along with that? I mean, what if, what, what if the guy said to her, but don't worry, you're going to be number one. You're going to be number one out of all these girls. She's going to be like, I don't want to be number one. I want to be the only one. And if I'm not going to be the only one, I'm not going to be one at all. See, there is no possible way for you to be saved by the light if you still give yourself to seeking after darkness. 
Here's another way. Believers or so-called believers who are casual about or even openly embracing of sin. Casual about or even openly embracing of sin. You've got something in your life that you know is wrong, but you're like, well, I'll just deal with that later. I says, I'm not going to, you know, I know this is wrong, but nobody's perfect. You know, we'll just, I'm sure, whatever, you know. Or, or, or maybe, maybe it's, it's like Christians, for example, that cheat on their taxes regularly. There's not a doubt in their mind they know it's wrong, but they just do it. Still music off the internet. A college guy who sleeps with his girlfriend and gets drunk on the weekend, but still wants God to be a part of his life. So he comes and he sits in here on the, on, on the weekend. Or maybe there's some part of the Bible's morality you just find offensive. So you just choose to opt out of that moral teaching as if the Bible were a salad, a salad bar where you can take the parts that you find tasteful and leave the parts that you don't. That is a sign that you don't actually know God because you cannot know Christ as Savior and Lord and not have forsaken what he has forbidden. You cannot love Jesus and embrace the things that Jesus died to put an end to. You cannot enter into the light and still pursue darkness. Whoever says, John says in the next chapter, 1 John 2, 4, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The one that says, I know God, but is doing things willfully, intentionally, that they know are not according to God's will is a liar. If you know Jesus, listen, you don't don't get to know Jesus as a life coach or an advisor who gives tips. He doesn't come that way. You know him as Lord. And Jesus, Luke 6, 46, looked at a group of people who said to him, hey, we want you as our Savior. We want you as the miracle worker, but we're not too excited about the Lord part yet. And Jesus said, why would you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? It's like a guy, again, looking at a girl saying, I want the benefits of marriage from you, but I have no intention of making you the romance and love of my life. It's just not how that thing works. By the way, just so we're clear, I'm not saying that you agree with me on everything. I'm saying, yeah, there are some things in the Bible that are, you're going to have to study out for your own. You have to come to your own convictions about them. And some of them are going to take you a while to figure out. Some of them are difficult. What I'm saying to you is that from the beginning, you go into that question with the disposition that where he's right and you're wrong, or excuse me, where you and he disagree, he's right and you're wrong. You do so with an attitude of humility that says, I don't understand this yet, but I know that whatever you think about this is right because you're the Lord and I'm not. And let me again just say this humbly but directly. If you're the kind of person that has to agree with Jesus before you'll submit to him, I don't think you get the concept of lordship. Lordship is not a a, a plethora of suggestions he puts on the table and asks you to choose your favorite 10 out of them. He says, this is it. I'm Lord of all or I'm not Lord at all in your life. Right? So uh, casually embracing sin. Here's one more. Praying a sinner's prayer with no accompanying life change. Praying a sinner's prayer as if it's like a ritual you go through. You know, are you saved? You know, oh yeah, I prayed to receive Jesus with my grandmother when I was eight years old. Or I did it at your church. I, you know, at the end of the service, I prayed the prayer and I, I filled out one of your little cards and I even got baptized. I told you that um, last year there was a survey, 2011, Barna, that in our area, in our area, did you know 50% of the people that live in our city, 50% say that at some point in their life they have prayed a sinner's prayer to receive Jesus as their Savior. 50%. Even though two-thirds of that 50% has no regular presence in church at all and have lifestyles that differ in no significant way from people on the outside. Listen, I want you to hear this. God never says a prayer will save you. It is not going through a ritual that saves you. It's not repeating some words. It's not a prayer that saves. It is repentance and belief in the gospel that lays hold of salvation. And the prayer can express the repentance and belief, but the prayer does not replace the repentance and belief, right? Right? 
I think the example I used for you was the example of a chair. You know, the chair that you're sitting on. You can really only be in one of two relationships with the chair. You're standing beside the chair or you've transferred your weight off of your feet onto the chair. It doesn't matter what you, you say to the chair. You know, if you came in this morning and made a speech to the chair, this afternoon, whenever you're hearing this, you, you, you say, oh, chair, you are so beautiful and strong and big. And I, I just really, I want, I want to receive you as my personal chair. You're going to be my personal chair and my, my personal chair and comfort. And you just make this speech, but you never sit down, right? I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. The, the chair, if it had ears, might be moved by your prayer, but the point is not the what you say to the chair, the point is the posture you take toward the chair. The point is not the prayer you say to Jesus. The point is the posture you take toward Jesus. So the question is not have you prayed a prayer and gone through a ritual. The question is right now, are you in a posture of repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ? Repentance meaning you have surrendered control of your life to him. Faith meaning you have trusted what he said he did to save you. Because that's the issue. The issue is not what ritual you went through, whether it was called confirmation or baptism or praying a prayer. I don't care what it was. It's not the prayer ritual. It's the posture of repentance and faith that saves. And I think I'm talking to a culture that is filled with a lot of people that don't really seem to get that. So number one, you don't know God if you sin. Let me give you a positive version of that if you're taking notes. You do know God if you're in a posture of surrender. You're in a posture of surrender. By the way, I'm not talking about sinless perfection either. Because if you're going to walk with God, as I'll explain in a minute, you're going to fall a lot. I certainly do. But the point is, every time you fall, you get back up and you resume your posture of repentance toward God. It means that, that you have a, a, have a decided surrender to Jesus Christ, and though you stumble from it, you always get back up and resume the position that, that he's the boss because he's the Lord. That's what I'm talking about. Here, here's number two, verse eight. If we say we have no sin, but we, excuse me, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, go down there. If we say we have not sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Number two, you don't know God if you say you have no sin. See, this is an error on the opposite side. John says that, watch this, being unaware of the sinfulness in your heart is a sign that you don't actually know God. Because one of the first evidences of the light of God coming into your life is you begin to have eyes to see the sin that is in your heart. Imagine it like this. Say that you were in a, a, your room, and your, it was pitch dark, but your room was filthy. But it's pitch dark. And I said to you, um, is this room filthy? Is it messy? And you say, well, you know, I don't know. If you wanted to be known as a clean person, you might say, well, sure, it's clean. I mean, it looks clean to me. I can't see anything that's wrong with it. All right? But if I took a, a very small match and I lit the match, and by the light of that match, you could see that the dresser's overturned and there's clothes all over the floor. And then I replaced the match with a flashlight. Now you can see that the bed's not made and the sheets are filthy. And then I, I replaced the, the flashlight with a halogen bulb, and now you can see so, there's such bright light that you can see the fine dust that's on top of all the pieces of furniture, and you can see the mildew that runs along the baseboards. The sign that the light of God is coming into your life is like that. The first sign of God's grace is you get a sense of how wicked your heart is. The sign that God's grace is coming into you is not that you start to feel super awesome and super spiritual and super holy. The sign that God's grace is coming into you is that you, like John says, become aware of how sinful you are. And this is one of the things that people find most offensive about the gospel and why many people turn it off. 
I, I found that most people in our culture are okay with admitting that they're not perfect and that they make mistakes, but you notice they always want to justify that their mistakes are not as bad as other people's mistakes. And so you're always wanting to be like, well, my mistakes are not that bad. I'm, pre- I'm still a pretty good, you know, good person. So you'll admit that you are sinful and that you make mistakes, but to watch this, say that you are worthy of condemnation and you are worthy if you got what you deserved, you would go to hell. That's something most people don't want to go down. That's a path they don't want to go down. Because we want to think that we're good people and that we deserve good things. And it's a hard thing to grasp. But I'm telling you, once you grasp that, you are very close to the gospel and the awareness of the state that you are before God is the first evidence that God's light is coming into your heart. And by the way, awareness of sin in your heart is not something that happens to you only when you're a, a non-Christian. But you ever meet those Christians that, that talk like, yeah, I used to be bad when I wasn't you know, saved, but now I'm saved, now I'm perfect. I, those people irritate me to no end. Um, I'm, I'm serious, you know, I'll be like, oh, like, what are you struggling with? Well, I just work too hard. I just care too much. Hey, last week, last month, I gave away so much money, I hardly had enough for my own needs. You know, and they're like, what are you struggling with? And I'm like, well, on the way over here, a guy cut me off in traffic, and I felt like dragging him out of his car and stomping on his face with golf cleats, right? (laughs) But now I don't feel like telling you that anymore, Mr. Perfect, right? You see, somebody that feels that way, watch, that's not a sign they're close to God, that's a sign they're blind. That's what that's a sign of. When you begin to, to, when God's presence begin to come into your light, life, it's not going to make you feel cleaner. It's not going to make you feel more holy. It's going to make you feel, if anything, dirtier. The clearest sign that you're growing in grace is not that you no longer sin. The clearest sign you're growing in grace is that you're more aware of how much sin actually pervades your heart. Do you get that? Because that, that might be different for some of you. The clearest sign you're growing in grace is not that you no longer sin. The clearest sign you're growing in grace is that you become more aware of how sinful your heart actually is. That's certainly how it's worked with me. I, I, recently, I was studying the story of John the Baptist, and I was you know, getting into it, taking it apart. And the Holy Spirit showed me this thing about how about John the Baptist, every single time, every time somebody directed attention toward him, he would always get out of the way and be like, no, no, don't look at me, don't glorify me, he glorified Jesus. And then suddenly, in a minute, the Holy Spirit turned that on me and said, your life has been the complete opposite of this. John the Baptist is all about, hey, he must increase, I must, de- or, excuse me, he must e- increase, I must decrease. I, John's like, I'm not the Christ, and me, I've always been like, hey, I want Jesus to have glory, but I'd like to have a little bit of it too. So I want you to notice Jesus and me too. So, but, but just every Sunday, every weekend, there's a little glory war that's going on in my heart. And the question is, do I, am I more concerned about you giving glory to God or more concerned about you thinking about what kind of preacher I am? Who's going to get the glory? Who, who do I want you to leave thinking about? That's, do I want you to be more in awe of me or more in awe of God? And God shined this light on me that just showed me that, that, that through all of my, some of my best moments, my most spiritual moments where I was preaching the best, that there was this layer of sinful things that are going on in my heart. Now, guys, listen, I'm growing and changing. I, I see change in my heart, yes. But the point is, I feel more sinful now than the day I was converted because God's light in my heart is brighter. And because of that, I can see even more of the dust of my sin on the furniture of my life, and I can see more of the decay and mildew of sin in the crevices of my life than I could the day that I came to Christ. Church, listen to me. Closeness to God rarely, and by rarely, I mean never. Closeness to God rarely makes you feel holier. It always makes you feel dirtier. 
You want one more example of this? Prove it. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is a prophet of God. Now, when you're a prophet of God, that's the top of the food chain, right? When you're a prophet of God who gets a book of the Bible named after him. Anybody here got a book of the Bible named after him? I didn't think so, all right? So Isaiah is as good as it gets. He's a prophet of God. He gets a book named after him. He has a face-to-face meeting with God, Isaiah 6. How does he come out of that meeting? Does he come out like, oh, you wouldn't believe. I got a meeting with God. Look at my face. Isn't it glowing? I got a Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost pixie dust. I'm just going to spread it. Just touch me. I got, I got just everything. Is that how he is? Now, have you ever read Isaiah 6? When Isaiah sees God, he doesn't think about how awesome he is. He doesn't say what a privilege. He falls on his face and said, woe is me. I'm ruined. Because I I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and I didn't realize that until I got in the light of God's holiness. The sign that you are in the presence of God is not a feeling of how awesome you are. The sign that you are in the presence of God is a sense of how sinful you are. That's why the hymn says it like this, it's grace that taught my heart to fear, and then grace my fears relieved. What is, what, the first sign of grace is that your heart becomes aware of sinfulness. And when somebody carries themselves with an air of how good they are, that shows they don't know God at all. In fact, they have what we would call theological BO. Right? Imagine somebody never takes a shower but just changes clothes all the time. From a distance, they look like they're great. You get close to them and you're like, you're not clean. There are a lot of people, very religious people, who have theological BO. Because they do all, they put on all the garments of religion. But the sign that God's bathing light has come into your heart is you have a sense of how sinful your heart is. So number two, you don't know God if you say you have no sin. Let me give you the positive version of that one. You do know God if you're deeply aware of your own sinfulness. Listen, when that light of God comes in, and it's doing that for some of you, you're going to have one of a few reactions to it. This is very important because this is exactly where some of you are. For some of you, when the light of God begins to come into your life, what you do, what you want to do, is you want to retreat back into the darkness. Because darkness, if your eyes are used to it, is comfortable, right? Um, You ever been in a movie theater? And um, after the movie, usually you walk back out of the, you know, like the the hall and then back out in the lobby and then go out, and your, your eyes have a chance to get accustomed to the light gradually. You ever go out the little exit at the bottom right next to the, um, you know, the screen? You ever do that? You're walking out, and you're, just, you're kind of cruising along. You open the door, and you know, the light of day just hits you, and you. What do you want to do in that moment? What do you want to do? You want to retreat back into the darkness because you're comfortable there. That's happening to some of you right now. You see, you've started to come here, and you've never been in the presence of people who just said, this is what the Word of God says, and your heart is being exposed. And I know, I've been there. You want to go back into the darkness because it's more comfortable. But you know, remember what happens if you stay in the light, if you, if you walk outside and you stay there? It's painful, but you give your eyes a minute to readjust, and then you can see. And then after you've been in the light for a while, you don't want to go back in the darkness because there's so much more that you can see in the light. I'm urging you, listen, stay in the light. It's painful, yes. I know it's painful. I know that, that two or three times in the middle of the message, you're like, at this point, do I get up and leave? Right? And then you go home and type out an email to me, and then you save it, and then you would never send it, or sometimes you do send it. Yeah, I, I understand that, Okay? There are some people who, that's how they respond to this. They want to retreat. Some people, their response is they get defensive and they want to start insisting on their own goodness. They start thinking, well, yeah, yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm better than other people, right? We do that, right? I, you know, I'm not as bad as, I, must, I sin, yeah, yeah, but not like that guy over there. 
As long as I'm a guy grades on the curve, I'm going to be okay. Because I'm pretty confident I'm on the north side of the bell curve. Or you start making excuses for it. Well, the reason I made these mistakes is because I hung out with the wrong crowd or I had, I had bad parents. Let me tell you why that's a bad idea for a couple reasons. One, it calls God a liar. That's never a good idea. Got you, 1 John 1 10, you see it? If we don't acknowledge the sinfulness of our heart, we make God a liar. The Bible says that you and I are children of wrath. The Bible says we are sons and daughters of disobedience. The Bible says that we are born in iniquity. We don't sin because we hung out with the wrong crowd. We sin because we are the wrong crowd. In fact, the reason we wanted to hang out with the wrong crowd is because the sin that was in their hearts resonated with the sin that was in our hearts. That's why we chose to hang out with the wrong crowd, because we were more comfortable with the wrong crowd. So it just calls God a liar. Do you agree with God about his statement about your heart that you're worthy to be condemned? Here's the other reason it's, it's foolish. It's because it shows you're completely blind to the holiness of God. When you spend eternity with God, you're spending eternity with God. You're not spending eternity just with a bunch of other people. And when you say that I, I want to insist that I'm pretty good, that I'm not that bad, what you're showing is that you really have no concept of the holiness of God because for you to stand before God with sin in your life is, would be like a, a piece of tissue paper touching the surface of the sun. Grace taught my heart to fear. Or it's like, you know, um, when, when a doctor gets ready to operate, um, you know, they, they go through that washing process and they got their hands up. I've never actually seen this live, but I watch it on TV and that's everything on TV is true. Um, so, they, they, you know, they wash it up. And then, you know, at least on the TV shows, I see if, if, if somebody has to open the door for them, or if they go through a door, they don't reach out their hand and open the door. Somebody opens the door for them. There's a piece of trash on the floor. They don't reach it out and pick it up. They don't tie their shoe, right? Well, imagine that here's a guy that's about ready to go into operation, but he just got out of the sewer. He'd fallen in the sewer. Or imagine that as they pull back the sheet to operate on the guys, you know, do open heart surgery, three roaches run across his chest. Right, that sense of defilement in the presence of what needs to be clean, you multiply that times a billion, that's our sinfulness before a holy God. So when you insist on your goodness, when you want to rest in the fact that you are okay, it just shows that you don't get the concept of who God is and who you are. When you're awakened to God, you become deeply aware of your sinfulness and all you say is, woe is me for I am undone. And grace teaches your heart to be afraid. The other option is you can come to the light and you can confess it, which is the, the third thing here. Number three, you don't know God if you have no confidence before God because of your sin. You don't know God if you continue in sin. You don't know God if you're unaware of your sin. You don't know God if you have no confidence before God because of your sin. Look, look at verse one, chapter two. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, because we all sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, there are two very key words in there that you have to understand to understand what he's saying. Propitiation and advocate. Let's look at this one at a time. Propitiation. Propitiation is a hard word. Agreed? Most of you don't use it in casual conversation. I, I would venture to guess that yesterday, not a one of you used the word propitiation in a sentence, unless you happen to be talking about the Bible because you're super spiritual like that. But otherwise, you just don't use the word propitiation. And did you know, by the way, 
Here's one. My, here's a little soapbox. There is a school of preaching that says that I should just avoid words like that altogether because they're hard words and they're deep. They, you know, it's just like we need to make it accessible and make it you know, for people. And you know, just so we should just avoid those kind of words because people are going to get confused and they're not going to come back to church because you're using hard words they don't understand. I say, all right, number one, it's my job to teach you those words and show you what they mean. Because the deepest and most beautiful truths in the Bible are sometimes hidden in those words. Number two, if you can learn drink names at Starbucks, you can learn words like propitiation, all right, amen? If my fourth grader can figure out where every hidden bonus coin is on Super Mario Brothers, then you can figure out where the, the deepest and most beautiful truths in God's word is hidden, all right? So propitiation. The word propitiation literally means that a claim against you has been satisfied. Literally, in, in Greek, it means that wrath has been absorbed or ill will has been replaced by goodwill. Imagine that you um, were in an accident and you caused several thousand dollars worth of damage to somebody else's car. That person has a claim against you. Whether or not they are emotionally angry, they have a charge against you and they can hold you in court. But say that you pay every penny that they have demanded, when you paid the fullness of the penalty, then they would be propitiated towards you, which means they have no more claim against you. Jesus propitiated the holy wrath of God against our sin by suffering, get this, the full penalty of it in our place. On the cross, every ounce of penalty that you and I deserve for our sin was satisfied by Jesus' bloody death. Which is why, by the way, the cross was so bloody. Sometimes people, they're new and they're like, why is it, I don't get it, like, why is the cross so bloody and gruesome? And, you know, that's the point. Your sin is, is gross and gruesome to God. That's why God did not kill Jesus in a sanitary way. Because the penalty had to fit the crime of what we'd done, and our sin was gross and gruesome toward God. So when Jesus bled and died and was tortured on the cross, every ounce of penalty that you deserved was put into him so that the wrath of God was propitiated, so that God has no more claim against you because of your sin, because it's been satisfied in Christ. Which leads me to the second word, advocate. Advocate's a legal term, referring to somebody who argues your case before the bar of justice on your behalf. You know, we even use that term today, my advocate. It's not common. You usually call it your lawyer, but your advocate who stands and they, they argue for you in a court of law. Now, here's a question. Jesus, the Bible says if you're a Christian, then Jesus is your advocate before the bar of God's justice. What is your advocate arguing? This is very important. Because if it's in court today, your advocate usually argues your innocence. Or even if he'll concede that you're guilty, that you're a pretty good person otherwise. Right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he did this crime, but you know what? He buys Boy Scout cookies every year. <laughs> he recycles all the time. I got the proof right here. He even takes out the pizza boxes because you're not supposed to put those in the recycle. He does it all, man. And you're trying to get the judge to feel good about you even though you're guilty because you're relatively still a good person. We've already established that in the light of God's justice, the last thing Jesus is arguing is your innocence. You know what your advocate is arguing? His propitiation. He is standing before the bar of God's justice and he is saying, my advocate right now, listen to this. Right now I have an advocate before the Father. And he is not standing before the Father saying, oh, he's actually a good kid, God, don't worry about it. He's saying, yes, he's guilty. But every ounce of penalty, every ounce, Father, you poured into me. There's nothing left for him. 
You cannot punish him for that sin because you punished me fully. You know, I've told you before that I, I, I was seven years old when I learned this concept of Jesus being my advocate before the Father. And I've told you that it never brought me comfort because I always imagined it going down like this. Okay, so here's, you know, the God the Father. You got to think like a seven-year-old. Here's the, um, you know, the, the courtroom. And here's Jesus as my lawyer standing up in front of God. And God's like, oh my goodness. Greer again, JD again, seriously? The kid is sinning over and over and over again. And I would picture Jesus being like, no, 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 dad. No, no, hold on. He's not that bad of a kid. He's really not. He's good. He's got a good heart. Would you let him off again, please, God? Pretty please. I mean, you owe me, God, because I went to, you know, earth and everything in Bethlehem, I'm born a stable. And so you owe me. So, you know, why don't you let him off again? And the reason that never brought me any comfort is I knew eventually God would run out of patience. Because there were some sins that I seemed to commit over and over and over again. I was a seven-year-old, but as I was growing up, uh, I was just over and over and over. And I knew the time was going to come where God was like, uh-uh, that's it. No more leniency for Greer. I mean, that's the 491st time that he committed that sin. And I did the whole 70 times 70 thing, but boom, 491, we're going to drop the wrath on this kid, right? <laughs> that's what I thought. Do you notice? My advocate is not arguing for leniency. He's arguing for justice. First John 1 John 1.9, excuse me, you see this? If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just, not lenient and kind, but faithful and just. By the way, you ought to underline faithful and just because those are the two most important words in the whole Bible. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So take out a pen right now and underline it, a highlighter. You got a tube of lipstick, smear it, prick your finger, dab it in blood, whatever it takes. You need to remember those words. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins which means my advocate right now looks at God, the Father, and he says, you can't because you punish me. And it would be unjust. It would be unjust for you to punish him for the same sin that you punished me for. So therefore, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus because all the full weight of our condemnation was put onto the head of Jesus who now stands as our advocate before the throne of God. And that gives me great confidence before God. You understand that? It gives me great confidence before God. Before, here's how we sing it here at the church, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. There's no way the judge can hold me accountable because my plea is perfect. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. By the way, who tells you about the guilt within? Is that the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's not the only one who convicts you of your sin. Guess who else does it? Satan does it. He loves to tell you about how guilty you are to remove your confidence before God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? I'm like, no, no, Satan, I'm actually a pretty good person. I'm good. I've done my quiet time eight days in a row now. No, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied, propitiated, to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. You want to know how you find assurance of salvation? You're not beholding you. 
You're not like, hey, God, look how awesome I am. Look how much, look how spiritual I've gotten. Look, I'm so much better than everybody else around me. Behold him there, the risen lamb. My perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. That is the assurance of the gospel. I know that I am received before God. I know that I am safe before God, not because I am in a position where I can boast about how righteous I am, but because I know my righteousness belongs to another who did it in my place, and my plea to heaven is as sure as his finished work. Which is why I would ask you this, if you're not confident, if you're not confident of where you stand with God, if you're unsure about whether or not you go to heaven, I have to ask, do you even understand the gospel? I told you in the first week of this series that I often ask people, are you a Christian? And the most common response I get is this, well, I'm trying. I'm doing better. I've been to church like, you know, three times in the last four. I've even started to read my Bible. I gave a little money to the church. I'm listening to Caleb and I feel positive and encouraging like, you know, 90% of the time now. And when somebody says that to me, I know they don't get it at all. Because they still think Christian is a title that you live up to. But someone who is a real Christian understands that Christian is not a title you live up to, it's a title Jesus lived up to and gave it to you as a gift. There was only one guy who ever earned the title Christian and he was so good at it, they named it for him. Christian, right? And he gave it to you as a gift because he purchased it in your place. Which means, listen, you ask me, are you sure of your salvation? Are you sure that you will enter into heaven and spend eternity with God? You know what my answer is? Yes. Watch. You're like, well, that's arrogant because you think you're better than me? Nope. It's because I know that my salvation is now as sure as Jesus Christ's position before the Father. I could no more go to hell than Jesus could lose his position of favored status because he has become my righteousness. Because I'm no longer depending on what I do to get to heaven. I'm depending on what he has finished. So if you were unsure, see, about this, it shows me you don't get the gospel because the gospel always leads to confidence. In fact, the gospel produces two things in you that no other religious truth, no other truth will ever produce, at least not simultaneously. Watch this. The gospel produces humility and confidence. Nothing else will produce those at the same time. You see, what you believe about yourself usually produces either humility or confidence. So if you're the kind of person who's failed a lot and you realize how much you mess up, then you have a natural humility and you're like, how could God love me? But if you're the kind of person who has succeeded at your religion, well, you think you're righteous. And so you're really confident before God. You're like, I'm good. I'm better than other people. And I'm on the, the good side of the bell curve. But you're proud. And you look down on other people who haven't done as well as you. You see, I know that there are some of you here in either camp. There are some of you that you're more naturally humble. Maybe it's because you had a condemning father who always told you how bad you were. Maybe it's because you've just failed a lot and you realize how bad you are and so you're constantly beating yourself up and you're naturally humble. There are others of you listening to me who soar with pride because people have always told you how awesome you are, starting with your parents and finally you just started to believe them. You're like, oh, awesome, ends in me. You know, so I'm an awesome and I just believe that. 
Both camps of you need the gospel. The gospel, listen, which is that you are simultaneously more wicked than you ever imagined, but also more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. See, that produces both humility and confidence. Humility because you recognize how sinful you are. Confidence because you recognize how complete Christ's work is on your behalf. The sign that you understand the gospel is humility and confidence, not one without the other. Martin Luther, 1520, used a phrase that he said, get this, the whole church rises or falls on this phrase. If somebody understands this phrase, then they stand before God. If somebody misses this phrase and doesn't get it, then their whole faith is a sham. You don't know what the phrase is? Simul justes et peccator. All right, be encouraged, write that down. It's in Latin, Luther said it in Latin. Here's what it meant, simul, simultaneously, justus, righteous, just, et, and peccator, sinful. Simultaneously, righteous and sinful. Sinful in what I am, righteous because of what Jesus accomplished in my place and gave to me as a gift, so I know simultaneously I am more wicked than I ever probably imagined and more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope because my acceptance is based on the finished work of Christ, not my righteousness. So cheer up, you are worse than you think, all right? (laughs) And Jesus is better than you ever dared hope. So number three, you don't know God if you have no confidence before God because of your sin. You do know God if you rest confidently in the finished work of Christ. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this? I've told you I'm a um, type A. I got to have action steps. You got to forgive me for that. Here are the action steps. Here's what I want you to do with this. Number one, you need to assess. You need to assess. You need to assess which of these are true about you. Because depending on your personality, you probably gravitate toward one or some combination thereof. Are are you the kind of person who is, as you get exposed to the light, you kind of, you bow up a little bit, you're sort of rebellious, and you're like, well, I'm not, you're not touching that, Jesus. I'm going to follow you, but mm -mm, not this. Or are you the kind of person who, when the light of God begins to come in, you almost reflexively start to self-justify? And start to insist that you're good because you've always built an identity on other people thinking that you were better than others. There are some of you like that. You're proud. There are others of you that you could not imagine that God really could be as gracious as the Bible says he is. That he really could love you so much that he would take upon himself the penalty for your sin. That though you deserved hell, he would take it in your place. You see, the gospel requires you to believe two things that are really difficult. You are so bad that Jesus had to die for you, and he was so gracious, he was glad to die for you. That phrase is not original with me, but most people won't go to either side of that because they don't want to think of themselves as that bad, and they don't want to think of the God as that loving. They prefer this mushy middle where you're a pretty good person, and God's kind of like a a, a benevolent Santa Claus who doles out blessings. And the Bible turns both those on their head and said, you are worse than you think, but God is better than you think, so your salvation will have nothing to do with you, and you will boast not in your righteousness for the rest of eternity. You will sing, salvation belongs to our God. Because you know what that's going to do to you? If you ever get this, it's going to mean that you no longer negotiate with God about how much of your life he gets to have. 
If God, if you were a pretty good person and God negotiated a settlement with you, you could probably negotiate what parts of your life you're going to give to him, which parts you're going to keep for yourself. But when you deserved hell and Jesus saved you from it by taking hell into himself for you, guess what? All bets off. At that point, everything in your life belongs to him because apart from him, you would be in hell forever. And when you understand the gospel, you no longer think like, what do I have to give to God? You start to say things like the hymn writer said, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you ever get grace, surrender becomes natural because you're like, where would I be apart from grace? The ones that miss God, three categories, you see it? The rebellious, the proud, and the unbelieving, every time. Don't be one of those people. Don't let your rebellion take you into eternity apart from God because you think you're smarter than him. Don't be proud and just refuse to let the light come in because you built your identity on how other people think that you're awesome. Build your identity on the fact that he loves you and gave himself for you. That's better than being awesome. It's safer than being awesome because it's dependent on his grace that never changes. And don't be unbelieving. Don't be the kind of person that doubts that God really could be as good as God says he is because he is infinite in love and as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how great is his love for his children. So you just need to assess. Here's the second thing I want to tell you to do real quick. All right, you need to learn to love. You need to learn to love and cherish conviction and repentance. Most people don't like conviction. That's why when, you know, somebody tells you, oh, it's a good sermon today, you come in nervous. You're like, oh, What's he going to talk about? What's he going to talk about? I'm not going to get convicted. Because you think repentance and conviction is like a trip to the woodshed where God hauls you out back and just starts wailing on you. Repentance is not a trip to the woodshed. Repentance is like a bath where God is washing away from you all the darkness that is keeping you from joy in him. And he does so in love and it becomes pleasant. It becomes sweet because it is administered in love. That what God is doing is he is removing the things from you that keep you in darkness and he's taking that darkness out of you and he's bringing you into light and you begin to cherish it and you begin to say, God, search my heart and know my ways and see if there's any wicked way in me because these are the things that are keeping me from having joy in you. Learn to cherish and love repentance. Lastly, keep coming toward the light. It's like I told you men to go, right? Remember this? Some of you, your eyes are hurting. I understand that. I was there once. Keep coming. Let your eyes adjust because as your eyes adjust, you will find the glory of God's grace is so much better than any of the false glories that the world put in front of you. So keep coming. Stay here. Keep coming. Listen and let God, the Holy Spirit, adjust your eyes so that you will begin to be comfortable in the light because it's so much better, I can tell you, than the darkness. Are you sure that you know God? Any of these things apply to you? Are you rebellious? You proud? You unbelieving? Let me get everybody at all of our campuses if I could. Why don't you bow your heads with me right now? I'm going to walk you through this. Whether you're a believer or non-believer, I would invite you to walk through this with me. It'll mean something different for you if you're a believer or non-believer, but the actions are the same. Will you acknowledge your sinfulness to God right now? Would you maybe for the first time agree with God about his verdict on your life?
condemned. Can you embrace it? I'm not good. I don't deserve good things. Condemned. Maybe express it like this. Say, even use these words. I am so bad, Jesus, that only the blood of the cross could save me. That's how bad I I am. I am so bad that only the blood of the cross could save me. Will you surrender to his lordship right now? You say, God, I've still got a lot of questions, but you know what? You're the Lord. You're right and I'm wrong. And I don't know how some of these questions are going to be answered, but I'm willing right now to sit down in submission to to you. I'm willing for you to, to be the Lord. Would you say that to him? Will you now believe the gospel that every ounce of condemnation that is owed to you, God has taken into himself because he loves you? Could you believe that God is that good? Could you believe that God is that gracious? Could you believe that Jesus has finished the work of your salvation just like he said he did? And will you receive it right now as yours? Will you embrace it and say, my Savior, mine? Now, if you're not a believer and you just did that, that's what we call conversion. That's what we call being born again. That's what we call being saved. Is you disagreed with God about his condemnation? You just surrendered to Jesus as Lord and you just received him as Savior. I think that probably happened to dozens of you across the triangle. If you are a believer, then see, that's a pool you got to come back to over and over again as you renew yourself in the gospel. It's not like you're getting saved over and over again. But the light of God is just coming into you and you're realizing more about your sinfulness and God's grace. And see, that's like I've told you. You don't grow spiritually by growing beyond the gospel. You grow spiritually by growing deeper into the gospel. The greater you become aware of God's grace, the greater your love for him comes, the greater your sense of surrender. You start to say, to quote one more hymn, guilty, vile, and helpless, We, spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be, hallelujah. What a savior. It is the gospel that creates that worship, hallelujah, what a savior, that becomes the power for you to do everything else spiritually. So you never go beyond the gospel to grow, you just go deeper into the gospel. You become more in touch with God's great grace and his glory. Father, I pray for those who for the first time adopted a posture of repentance and faith. God, give them the courage to tell somebody before they leave today, their friend who invited him, one of our pastors. Give them the courage to continue on. God, for believers, for me, God, open our eyes, continue to open our eyes so that we would stand in wonder and say, hallelujah, what a Savior. And that would become the wellspring of our devotion to you. 
in Christ's name. Let me ask everybody at all of our campuses, if I could, why don't you look up, why don't you stand up with me, and I want to end this time worshiping. We're going to use the words of a song to just sing the gospel over ourselves. If you're a believer, you're praying the gospel over yourself and over one another. Use this to celebrate the gospel. If you're not a believer, you, you feel free to sing along with us. But this is what the gospel is. Celebrate it, embrace it, sing it, rejoice in it, and let this become the wellspring of your life. You join us, as our campuses and our worship teams lead us in this.